Hi, everybody. Welcome to yet another cracking edition of the MapRound Show. This is the Secrets of Scale series where we're connecting you to founders who have scaled their companies to some cool levels. So with me on the line is Emmanuel Dubuick, the founder and CEO of AdWanted Group. Emmanuel, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Good to have you here, man. Uh, so uh, why don't you, you're doing cool things in the media space. So I'm like, super excited because I'm in the media space also. Um, tell me, tell our audience around the world just a bit about like, you know, who you are, who your customers are, the problem that you solve, you know, and that kind of stuff. Kick us off. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Emmanuel Zurich coming from France. I'm 50 years old. And we are trying to make the media buying uh, process simpler. So we have a bunch of technologies to do that. Uh, software for media agencies and media companies, data and content. That is what we are doing. So um, in a nutshell, what's the problem that you're solving for companies who are looking to buy media? Uh, we find the process to be um, somehow very outdated in some cases. So whatever is not digital uh, is still um, like coming from trade stories. Like you need insertion orders, uh, sometimes faxes. That's what we found. And we, we wanted to apply the, the tools that you find are digital to the traditional media. So that has been my approach. Okay. I spent a lot of time working, I say a lot of time, a few years at least, <clears throat> running um, your strategy for the likes of, you know, uh, TBWA, uh, very familiar with Omnicom, WPP Group, Ogilvy, and the ways of the, <laughs> the ways of these big advertising uh, companies. Um, I'm curious to uh, find out: are they are those your customers, or are they like strategic partners of yours? No, they are definitely our customers uh, in, in the three countries: so in, in France, US, and UK. Uh, we work for the big six, uh, as we call them, as well as medium-sized agencies. And they, they represent half of our customers. The other half would be uh, media companies in TV, radio, digital, out of home. Uh, we are very agnostic. Right, got it. So I'm uh, I'm a media planner sitting in uh, Ogilvy. My client is um, Ford or General Motors, say, yeah. or maybe Tesla. I have you know ten million dollars to spend on my uh, on the model x for argument's sake whatever the case is so in that context would i then use your tools to then get a better outcome from my media spend like how do your tools actually create value for for media buyers um so one of the tools you would be using uh from us would be um, a, a tool called media land and it's switch in frequency so we would help you do and prepare the best possible campaign mixing the different types of media uh, would match with your target audience. So that is what we are doing. You would, you, you would put some criteria uh, of there and with artificial intelligence, because that's how we get uh, the, the, the process to work, we would provide you with different scenarios, mixing, for instance, print plus digital or a TV campaign. That is how we work. Uh, we could also provide you with a, a lot of data sets. Um, so you can be much more granular with, than with just classical data sets. So we, we try to, to enhance uh, the data set uh, from the different sources we're working with. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so, so what's, what I'm curious to also understand, it's like, there's this role of GDPR and data now, what has been at least certainly back when I was there and it's a long time ago now. Uh, but, uh, there's a lot of talk around the role of data compliance. You know, I had, um, a CEO on the show recently, um, and we were talking about, um, uh, Philip Dutton, Dutton, sorry, um, from, uh, from a great company. That's all he's doing is helping mature companies, him and his team at least, uh, remain compliant from a data perspective. And I'm not sure what the latest state of play is when it comes to regulating or regulation of data when you're looking at scaling a brand like Tesla or Ford or whatever the case is, you know, the new Jeep EV range or what have you, um, using media buying tools. So there's obviously a, a list of publishers, Europe, uh, media planner looking to serve ads to a relevant audience and in and in many cases the bridge is data right facebook targeting all this kind of stuff so where are we at today when it comes to the use of data sets or compliant data sets in uh, scalable advertising platforms well uh, the, the important thing to know in our case is that uh, we um, we use anonymous anonymized data so we work with uh, you know, Ipsos or Kantar or Nielsen, uh, they provide us with, with data tech, but uh, in in any case, we are going to target an individual. We will work with groups of, of people targeting through video, through, but it, it, it's never uh, personal data that we use. And uh, bear in mind, we are coming from Europe uh, where GDPR was born. So uh, literally when we started the company, the regulation was already very hard in Europe compared to what we have here in the US. Very, very cool. So um, in the context of um, scaling ad wanted group, um, you guys have raised, I think it was around 25 million to date. Yeah, around about 25 Absolutely. million to date. Um, what have what have what role has that amount of funding played in your ability to scale it strategically? Like, how does how have you approached scaling AdWanted Group with that type of capital? Is it about opening up new new regions or territories or markets? Is it about developing more capable uh, ad serving engines? Uh, where, what has your approach been to scale AdWanted Group in the context of funding? Well, that has been critical, actually, and in fact. Uh, when I first launched at Wanted, I was trying to build a marketplace. And for any kind of marketplace, you need the critical mass of users, uh, buyers and sellers. It was pretty complicated. The ticket and make challenge. Buyers would say, what do you have for sale? Uh, and then the sellers would ask me, who are the buyers? And we were talking about traditional media. So that was pretty complicated. And um, to break that uh, vicious circle, uh, we, we started uh, discussing with other players within the ecosystem, like a rich and frequency company. And literally, my, my play was to tell them, you have a tool that does the shopping list, and we have a tool where you can do the transaction. So let's find a partnership. Uh, up to the moment, the, the founder of that company who was 70 years old, told me, you know what, you should acquire us. And actually, um, that's the reason why we first raised money. Um, that was to proceed the acquisition. It was very hard for me to raise money because we were not able to uh, uh, to, to to break the, the to, to crack the code and to make it work as a as a platform. But then doing an acquisition is, was a game changer for us. We had no clients, we had no credibility, um, we had no revenue, and so making a, doing a first acquisition ticked 
all these boxes. Suddenly, uh, you're someone because we have acquired a company that had been running for 25 years. So the credibility was there. Uh, this company had 95% market share on the French market among media agencies. So obviously, to, to speak with the publishers, that was much easier because I was representing buyers. And so that's how I used the money. And soon after, I realized that was probably the fastest way to grow the company. And actually, during the last seven years, we made um, seven acquisitions, nearly one every year. Actually, we did two every every year uh, during the pandemic. And, and, and the first one uh, was like five years ago. Hmm. It's very interesting. I mean, it's, it's come up twice in the last two days for some reason, um, where uh, like I had Devin Johnson on the show yesterday, and he was talking about also you know growing through acquisition, and he's like you know as a, as a scale as a strategy for scale, it's a really really powerful uh, idea, right? And that you're going to go to a fund uh, like Swin Capital Partners, for instance, um, and you said, listen, I know you guys have got this fund, you have to spend the money. I'm going to give you an easy way to drop, you know, big chunks of that on profitable companies and then as a consequence of that strategic partnership with them you're actually you know able to scale yourself absolutely and that's how i grew the company from a small startup in paris to an international group uh with subsidiary uh, with subsidiaries in, in us uk and with 160 employees now so uh the acquisition made it all and it it, the, the reach is better. Obviously, uh, the growth is, is is not exponential because we have acquired mature companies, but you have an existing base of clients. Uh, and so to, to, to build something stronger was somehow easier rather than starting from scratch and trying to get every client at a line. And the other point is you don't usually see that in an early stage company. Absolutely. And it's funny because... I was, I was literally in the verge of bankruptcy after three years. We didn't make any money and I had spent all the, the friends and family money. I couldn't raise any money. And then I went to the banks with this project of the first acquisition. The outcome was completely different because they knew we were acquiring something that was doing the revenue. And in fact, uh, they kept the company as a collateral to fund it. And so that was fine for them. Well, for them. The risk was really mitigated. And we built from that because the, the additional revenue we got from that company was also a fundraiser for us. And it, it's, only, it's only amplified over the years. So how do you approach acquiring a company? Let's just say I've got my, like I do, I've got my own media company. It's definitely not for sale. <laughs> but let's just say yeah. that it was. Um, how, what, what goes through your mind strategically around this particular type of scale strategy in the sense of selecting a, a potential acquirer or not? Because yeah. oftentimes, you know, you also can't make mistakes. Do you know what I mean? Oh, we do. We do. Are you in, <laughs> in the acquisition space? Really? Jeez. Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, we, 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 uh, we went bankrupt uh, of, for, for one of the companies we have acquired. Because there is some kind of recipe for success. And the recipe is obviously uh, uh, to find the right fit uh, between the, the companies uh, and the product. But all, there's, there's also a, a very important need for a fit between people. And you don't always see that during due diligence. In fact, uh, uh, the path we took uh, was always the same. We, we meet companies to tell them we would love to make a partnership with them. 
uh, with absolutely no intention to acquire them. But it becomes obvious after a few months that this partnership would be much more valuable if we could go for an acquisition. And then you start talking with the CEO of a company you've never met before. You start establishing good relationships until we agree on the fact that maybe we should go for an acquisition. But that doesn't make you know anyone within the company. And so uh, the day of the acquisition, you start being in touch with a lot of people, managers, execs, and sometimes you realize that they are just terrible. Because in, in, in one case, we had the, the CEO of the company who was brilliant, but the team behind, behind him, they were really terrible. So the day decided to move, uh, then we were just left with the execs. And they were just terrible because, because of him, he was doing too much things. But they never tried to improve themselves and to uh, to get more skills. So uh, when the pandemic arrived, the, the company just burst, and we had to bankrupt that. So lesson learned: uh, there is a lot of things related to to HR when we do that. It's also cultural. Uh, we we had been in we have been in face of many different uh, situations. First, because we were a young startup and we acquired companies that were 25 years old. 40 years old, and actually the U.S. company we have acquired was 104 years old. So the culture between two companies from a startup to a 104 years old company is absolutely different. Not mentioning the language, as you may hear, I don't have exactly the same language. <laughs> and so uh, for, for that reason, that makes the recycling even more complicated. Um, but it's, it's very, actually, I'm passionate about that. I learn a lot, but I know that we always face challenges. So help our audience understand you potentially haven't acquired seven companies in the last few years <laughs> uh, or maybe a few more like Devin has from Connected. But um, are, you, are you creating a group structure where the group owns well preferred stock in all the subsidiaries? And is it really a case of going to your, your, your investors and saying, look, you're going to own a percentage of this group company and the services or the the propositions of the the products and services of the subsidiaries are complementary in nature so together um, we become a, a more stronger value proposition but from an investor perspective you guys are getting a bigger piece of a bigger pie yeah well yeah, the, the the risk ip is uh is this one is for sure. We, we don't go for an acquisition if it doesn't create values for the initial investors because now we started with one company that became a group uh, and the group is a, is a holding company holding all these subsidiaries. And by the way, the, the business we started with, the marketplace that I wanted to create, never made it. So we had to stop that. And we only kept all the companies we have acquired which, which offered very interesting potential. And so, uh, yeah, the, the, the return for the investors is to, to make something seamless, obvious that complementarities are created. Like, for instance, at that very moment, I have businesses in France, in UK, and the US. They are all leading their markets with between 80 and 95% of their markets, but they have never exported. So the technologies we have in UK, I'm trying to build that in the US. And so that's how we create value, because this company that is doing really well in UK, now, if it starts exporting in U.S., that becomes uh, a much bigger marketplace. And obviously, for the, for the investors, the, the outcome is going to be fantastic. Well, that's the goal. 
Mm. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. You mentioned the mis- you know making mistakes in this space. I because I you know haven't gone and acquired executed on the strategy, so I'm coming really coming in really cold. But I would be fearful if I was sitting on a fund of say 50 million or access to funds to go and acquire companies to help me scale. Like I would be nervous, <laughs> you know, about yeah. ruining relations. Like because you know, like you're not like a you're not a necessarily financially you know um, capable enough if you if you don't really know the space like i'm learning i'm doing my securities exams here in the u.s at the moment and let me tell you (laughs) let me tell you everybody it's a whole different world out there you know and so i i have sold companies but acquisition you kind of get some principles you know just enough to be dangerous you know what i mean yeah it's it's, it's a learning curve when, I mean, I, I did a first acquisition, so I did, not, I did know nothing about acquisition at first. So we went for a small deal. It was pretty cool. But I had no money. My company was making losses, and we make an acquisition. The combination of the two companies was still making losses. So you need to prove the investor that the acquisition is transforming. And then you try to transform the, the acquired company, make more profits. And then you go to your bank saying, you see, we, we made that acquisition, and 18 months later, the company is doing twice as much as what he was doing. So now we want to go for a bigger acquisition and they would lend you more money. So that's how we started with a, a small acquisition, probably around 1 million. And the last one was 12 million. So each time we are growing and going for a bigger acquisition, knowing the fact that for me, I spend as much time on a deal, which is 1 million uh, than a one for 12 million. So now as we grow, we tend to go for bigger and bigger companies. But I couldn't have started immediately with the big one. Because then maybe that's where we would have made a mistake and have to bankrupt the company. So it was good to kind of um, try and learn on smaller targets and then expand and grow. And, and by the way, gain credibility uh, among the, the investors. It took us five acquisitions to be a profitable group because the, the initial company was making so much losses trying to build a, t- a tech that was never working that I was trying to go for the next acquisition to make more profit and compensate. It took us yes, five acquisitions to get there. And now we are building because we are uh, self-sustainable, uh, profitable, and, and with a positive cash flow, which is pretty new. It's just been two years we've reached that. I'm going to come back to that, but we've got to take a quick break. The Matt Brown Show is presented by Carafin, an investment bank that offers and supports direct private investments in U.S. operating companies. Over the past 20 years, investors have placed over $1.2 billion of private debt and equity in more than 100 companies through Carafin and its affiliates. Carafin leverages technology to empower its community of investors to deploy their capital far more efficiently than ever before and connects their community of engaged investors with worthy companies. Invest portions of your portfolio in direct private investments today. Visit carafin.com forward slash Matt Brown Show for more. And we're back. So um, <laughs> just to circle back to that point you made where you acquire a company and then it just it's like losing, 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 and or the thing goes bankrupt. So you've been in the space where businesses have died in your experience, like you've been involved with it in some way, shape, or form. Um, so have I. You know, I've founded 14 startups over 25 years, had a couple of exits, but, you know, had a lot of businesses where the wheels came off in a complete car crash. <laughs> Um, yeah. And I have my perspective on it, and I'm, I'm 
we would love to get yours. How do you manage that? Because I found that in this, how do you manage the feeling of losing a business dying or having a business die under your watch? Because I found that my personal experience has been like ambition's a double-edged sword. Like it's all nice to talk about oh, it's a secret to scale, you know, you you're raising twenty-five million, whatever the case might be, or fifty million, seventy million, hundred million, some of the guys have done uh, on the show. Uh, because you you have this ambition, you know what I mean, to scale, and it's just, it's a similar sort of principle, different context for you, of course, but the principle is the same. Meaning, you have this ambition, you do this thing, and it doesn't work, and so you're sitting with a with a with a failed business. Um, what has your experience been around managing emotions when, in the pursuit of scale, things don't work out? Oh, uh, very uh, interesting points. So when, when that company we acquired bankrupt, I had absolutely no emotion. I was cold-blooded and decided to close the company because of my experience. Actually, I started my first company when I was 23. That was an advertising agency. I built it up all by myself. And after uh, 17 years, it went bankrupt. And I lost everything. I lost, by the way, my marriage. I lost my house. I lost everything. So that was a very interesting lesson uh, for me. So when 10 years later, among our group, one of the subsidiary is not working well, I just didn't want to wait because I still had six companies that were working well and one who, who was in difficult period. And that's when, because of that previous experience, I was like, there is, it is a no-brainer. We have to stop that immediately. Otherwise, it's going, to, it's going to affect all the other businesses within the group, and that would be a nightmare. So we took the decision within just a few months, saying it's not going to be, uh, to be better. That was the beginning of the pandemic, and we saw that the, 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 the influx of clients just disappeared over a, a few weeks. And I was like, we cannot support uh, the funding of that, so we better stop immediately. And that was a good – and actually, our banks and partners liked that because we told them, we are going to bankrupt the company. That company doesn't have that much debt, so we are not having any issues with the vendors or partners, but it is important for us to stop that immediately to save the rest of the business and to grow it. So they appreciated our transparency there. And so, yeah, you, you need to remain completely cold-blooded, uh, even if you have to, uh, to let people go. But at some point, it was stopping that small company or geopolitizing everything else. Mm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think, uh, but your first one wasn't like that. Like if you, you know, if you losing no. the shirt off your back and you're losing your marriage and you're basically losing your sense of self and your self esteem and your self confidence. Yeah, like the first one. Because I, 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 yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because I, I waited probably too long for the first one, so I didn't want to admit the difficulties I, I was facing, and so I was the sole owner of the company. I, I brought another investor in the company who was in a really bad shape. I didn't know that and actually precipitated uh, the bankruptcy of the first company. So, uh, yeah, it really, I learned as much as I could from that first bankruptcy. And, you know, when you bankrupt after 17 years, it's not the same as, you know, if, if you start your company and it fails fast, well, maybe that was not a good market fit there. It was, it was terrible because I was building, the company was growing. I mean, we had a nice and decent-sized uh, team, like 50 people. And then suddenly, overnight, you have to just stop because uh, you don't have any cash uh, to continue. That's, that's 
that that was something very important for me when I when I started the new company. I had that experience of some kind of failure. And by the way, uh, that's one of the reasons why I moved to the US. Because in France, this is absolutely not accepted. It is not acceptable to to bankrupt a company. I was like a thief, or I was like, I don't know what. Um, and then I came to the US for some kind of training, and I, I was uh, explaining my experience to some investor, and and told the guy I, I had to bankrupt my previous company, and the guy literally stopped me as I was talking, and he said, "You have one more degree than others because of that, meaning you either succeed or you learn." Uh, when in France, it's like I had a red mark. Even after 17 years, you're a loser, and no one would would help me for the new company. So I still started the company in France, but as soon as I could, I moved to the US. And actually, the mindset of the US uh, was exactly what I, what I needed. Yeah. So um, I had a group of. So I did. I did a. I had a group structure. I wasn't acquiring companies, but we were developing technology platforms to complement service various things. Um, and uh, and then when I moved to the states, I had to I handed it over to a management team. I'm like, yo, here's the keys to the car. Don't crash the freaking thing, you know. But it was my wife and myself out the business. Fast forward six months, you know, it was case of like, well, we're not putting any more money into it. We were losing clients, and it was just like, no. So I killed it. Um, and in South Africa, it's the same culture as France, from what I'm hearing, anyway. In the sense of like, you get penalized for it. So yeah. it's kind of like, you know, your business dies and then you're not allowed to run another business for 10 years, you know, or something yeah. like that. Um, and it's like, and it's ridiculous. So I was speaking to uh, a venture capital uh, guy here um, a couple of weeks ago, Brandon, and he was talking, I said, look, you know, I'm getting into this fun- this financing space, investing space for, for startups and high growth companies, whatever you, you know, and, and explain to me from a venture capital perspective, what you feel are my options. And so one of the options was, well, you you raise a fund, kind of like what venture capital firms do. You raise a fund, you shove it into an SPV, you make 10 investments, that SPV or special purpose vehicle, it owns these 10 companies and you take 2% of the fund, there's some carry, DPI off the back of that, what have you. And I said to him, yeah, 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 but now hold on a second. What happens in America if, let's just say you raise... 10 million for the purposes of discussion and there's zero ROI for, and you raise a million dollars from 10 investors. What happens then? He goes, nothing. Yeah. And, and like this, and I'm like, like, I'm like, what, <laughs> how do you yeah. get to do that and get, you know, like there's no recourse. Well, there is recourse. Of course, is obviously there's other things that go down in any failed business relationship, but the next, let's just say it happened today. Like the next day you could do it again. You know? Yeah, yeah, with the experience, uh, and, and that even makes a difference in the U.S. when when it's a red mark in, in France or, or South Africa, that would be seen as yeah, like a degree. That's exactly what the guy told me. Um, because of that experience, you know that you don't want to fail anymore. And, and by the way, you didn't fail; you just left. Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, unless unless there was a fraud. There, there is no different. Yeah, that's different yeah. for sure. Like to, to your point though, I was speaking to Steve Blank when I first interviewed him. He's been on my show a few times. Uh, but uh, he said to me, you know what? In Silicon Valley, Matt, you know, we, we've got a term here in Silicon Valley for an entrepreneur that, that's failed or that has, you know, started a startup and then failed. 
And he goes, you know what that word is, Matt? And I'm like, what's that? He goes, experienced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that approach. Yeah. yeah it's a- the, 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 the U.S. mindset really helped me in that show. It, it took me nearly four years to, to have the first dollar of revenue. So I had some investors asking me, why the hell are you staying in the U.S. where the cost of living is so important rather than staying with your group in Paris? Well, that was just the mindset because every time I was meeting bankers in France, they would remind me of the bankruptcy like five years previously or six or seven. It's like it's never raised. Here in the U.S., I was completely virgin, but people always give you some chance. So I was, I was both far from the issues I had in France and the mindset made me make all these acquisitions from here in the U.S., even some acquisitions in France, even with funders in France. But I was, I was able, because of the mindset, to, to get rid of all these kind of bad moods or, uh, you know, the, the evil look that you sometimes have from, from people because you've bankrupt the company. Yeah. So um, I want to circle back to your, uh, your investment raise. Uh, to because uh, I believe it was, I think it was Sven. I had it up on uh, on my screen here a moment ago. I think it was Sven Capital Partners or something like that. Anyway, um, yeah. so they're based out in France. So I've, it hasn't come up on the show before. Like lots of capital raising conversations happen in you know on this show about America. What happens? Like, what, how would you characterize the fundraising challenges? of a European-based startup versus, say, you know, what your, what your more recent experience is here in the U.S.? Well, uh, first, um, I'm here in the U.S., I'm still looked at um, as a European company. And so we have, we have, that means we have never been able to raise money in the U.S. because today we are, we are running $20 million, $20 million of revenue globally and 30% of that in the U.S., meaning 70% of the revenue comes from Europe. The headquarters of the company uh, is in Paris. So for U.S. investors, it's like, well, you're not really here, and we're not going to invest in it. So actually, what I'm, what I'm preparing at the very moment is to go for the next acquisition, which is going to be in the U.S., where I think I will raise money and where the valuation will be much bigger than if I were to do exactly the same from So even if now I'm a U.S. president with the green card, yeah, the business is still too small to, to, to make the interest. Interestingly, the fact I am in the U.S. was something very good for European investors because they, they know how hard it is for um, a company from outside the U.S. to get into the U.S. market. So actually, that was pretty good. And so most of the money we raised is coming from and that was through debt, and that was through equity. Uh, out of 25 million, half of that was coming through equity. So we had investors, and uh, the last round was only through, through debt, maintaining debt. And that's when uh, Twin Capital and Arbevel went in. It's interesting that, eh? Um, that idea of, of investors knowing intimately well they just know that it's hard for a european-based startup to expand to the u.s um not in all cases but in most cases um has that been your experience though i mean if you're the guy doing it has it has it been in the context of scaling ad wanted group has it really been at a really acute level of difficulty to expand here uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. So when, when I started the, the company, I first uh, 
hired someone here in the US to develop the marketplace I was trying to launch. And I soon realized that the cost was absolutely immense. Like recruiting a salesperson in the US is probably three times as much as what it costs in Paris. Um, and so it was nearly impossible to, to kind of bootstrap in the US. You, you needed a lot of funds. And I soon realized it would be easier to raise money to make an acquisition rather than raising the same amount of money and trying to launch myself from scratch. So, uh, and actually that is exactly that strategy that uh, blows uh, investors' mind in Europe because it's kind of like, oh, you crack the code to penetrate the US market as a yes to an acquisition rather than trying to recruit someone. But it comes from the cost of hiring people in the US, the cultural difference, very hard to manage uh, U.S. people when you're not born in the U.S. because, you know, they, the way they were educated, trained, their skills are very different to what you get from your own country. Uh, acquiring a, a company that is already established in the U.S. removed all these issues. Yeah, it's, um, it's something that I think founders who build companies to scale and then exit from, I think what they sometimes do mistakenly is they they go, well, I'm going to start another company. It's like, no, 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 that that's, that's probably the harder way to do it. And you know, like, even if you hit, if you hit success today, let's just say this today's startup and you sell it, the next one doesn't mean you're going to be successful. So in theory, you could lose all your liquidity in this next venture, right? Because again, yeah. it's a very unpredictable and certain journey that we're all on, right? As founders, entrepreneurs and, and so forth. Um, and yeah, and, and that's, by the way, a very important point. I have a lot of friends who have tried to, to launch their business in the U.S., and they would stay, in, especially in, in France, sending someone. That doesn't work either. You need to, to be one of the founders. You need to have some skin in the game in the U.S. So if you send your, your sales manager in the U.S., that's the best precisely for failure. So that, that's why it's difficult, because if, if you have a very good idea and you launch your, your business outside of the U.S., and you send someone, it doesn't work as well as if you are there and you represent your companies so people know that they can trust you and help you build, by the way. But if you, if you don't get there, it's very, very hard. That, so that means when I moved to the US, I also to rethink all my management in France because then I was not there uh, to build the team and grow it. And, and that's, I, I think that is exactly what the investor like. The fact that we were able to manage these two things in the same time, penetrating the US market as well as keeping uh, the business running in front and growing, being away. Yeah, it's a, it is, it, that's, that's a very good point. Um, and go back to this, this idea of like, what do you do? I think there's, you're doing this scaled through acquisition story. I think if you do sell, like, you know, I'm going to ask you just now around like, you know, how much scale is enough for you? What do you want to do with this thing? But let's just say like, if you did, sell it at wanted group and then you founded another company like if you look back at even your own story right you know that's littered with things that didn't work out the way that you expected to but if you were sitting on like a million dollars or 10 million dollars or five million dollars or whatever you could buy a company with customers with products or services with EBITDA right and you yeah. you take all the risk out of it you know what I mean? Like yeah. you take, you don't have to start from day one with no customers, no brand, no nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like you buying an actual asset, and if you know how to scale a company, then you can scale this thing. You just, I'm now CEO, I'm the owner, 
and I might put in a, like a small team of people that I trust and together you give them some minority shares and then you go and scale this thing because you can bring your previous skill sets and experience yeah. where it keeps coming up to the table, right? So, so you take all the risk out Absolutely. and you get to scale it again. Yeah, and you, you, you bring also your fresh eye on the business that has been running. So it, it's really uh, uh, it's a virtual circle because you, you bring a lot of skills, new ideas. You, you help a team renew uh, themselves because they, they were so much doing the same thing uh, for years sometimes. Just bringing some fresh air is also a good opportunity to grow the company even faster. Yeah, and on that bombshell, we're going to take a quick break. Raising money for your startup? Well, why don't you close your next funding round fast? Get investor-focused media and FaceTime with relevant investors in days. Visit showworksmedia.com for more. That's showworks with an X, media.com. Right, guys, and we're back. So um, so let's talk about uh, scale and how much is enough. Like this this story of you acquiring companies, which I love, um, and, you know, where does it where does it get to a point where you're like, you know what? We're good. We've reached a size where we're hitting certain revenue numbers that are enough. Um, is 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 there a, is there a level or a stage that you is enough for you in terms of scale? Um, yes, uh, for sure, and and that is called ambition. So uh, I've reached a stage right now where the company has grown sufficiently to be cash flow positive. So I could just stop doing the acquisition, just knowing that. Uh, in five years from now, I would have to reimburse the investors that came for the debt. But literally, I could I could remain just the sale. And then, because people ask me uh, often, when when do you plan to stop? I say, well, when I have more uh, challenges than pleasures, literally. <laughs> and so, as long as I like what I do and it still grows, I'm I'm very fine um, going on the same path and try to grow the company even bigger. But literally, I could stop tomorrow. I would. Actually, I would really get bored because also part of uh, of my strategy uh, doing some acquisition, I'm I'm not operational anymore. So I was talking with one of my friends recently, and they would ask me uh, what kind of clients we have. I don't know personally any of my clients because the group is a buildup of companies that have been with their clients for ten years, for decades. So I don't know the clients. My own role is to manage the CEOs of these companies I have acquired. I am their coach. So if, if we were to, uh, to stop now the acquisition process, I wouldn't have much thing to do. I could just go fishing, which I don't like at all. <laughs> so uh, for my own motivation, I like to see the, the big picture and, and, and try, just try to envision how possible that is. Because of course, if each acquisition means either going for debt or equity, that means dilution. And of course, at some point, losing the control of the company. And I've been my boss uh, since I started working. So I don't know what it is to work for someone else. So that would be probably my limits. Um, that's when I would stop saying, well, if I, if I just have a few percentage points uh, of my company, even if it's a massive cage, but I don't have the control, I might not feel as good as that. So that, that could be the case, but I've not reached that stage yet. Well, you will. <laughs> yeah, I know. That. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's funny. So I made sure during the uh, I made sure during the last race that I was granted triple voting rights. So even uh, losing the majority of shares, I could still keep the control of the company and make the decision. 
Yeah. But yeah, that has an end also. I know that. What are you struggling with right now when it comes to scale? Is it still finding more acquisitions in the US or is there something else that comes to mind? Like what when you're staring at the ceiling and you can't sleep, like what's that thing? Uh, it's pretty about um, funding versus value. Because right now, if, if, if I raise 20 million, for instance, which is uh, my next stage, trying to raise between 20 and 30 million to acquire a company that has exactly the same value, I would just get diluted. Uh, but that doesn't bring value to the group. So the goal is to find a, a company where you think you can do better and then have a, a decent multiple and raise at a much higher multiple. That, that, and the difference is the value you're getting out of that, unless you want to wait five years for the synergies to upgrade. But I need to make it in a short period of time. So that's the issue. Um, for instance, I know the valuation of the companies is much higher in the US compared to Europe. So I'd, I'd rather raise in, in the US. But if I acquire a company in the US, the valuation of that company is going to be higher as well. So it's, it's about finding the right momentum uh, like right now, I'm contacted by a lot of investors because they love a lot of money in digital operations or in cryptos, and they're looking for software companies like we are right now. So we don't have like 25% growth, but we are very stable. Uh, recurring revenue is probably 97% of our revenue. So very reassuring, but they, they, they will never make time five with us mm. in the short period of time. So it's always trying to find the right moment to do that. Got you, got you. Um, so I want to have a quick bit of fun with you uh, for a moment. So I want to give you the keys to the uh, Matt Brown Show time machine. And uh, if you could go back to yourself on day one of Ad Wanted Group, like, you know, no acquisitions, no, like no nothing, what advice would you give yourself about scaling Ad Wanted Group? Uh, don't listen to those who say this is impossible. So that would be the first thing. And especially when we were approaching the moments where the company was cashless and I couldn't raise funds on the initial project. Uh, when I started envisioning with some people that I should go for an acquisition, probably 90% of the people I was talking with would tell me, this is never going to happen. And actually it did. And um, because I, I believed in myself, I was in touch with uh, the, the CEO of the company I wanted to acquire. He knew we didn't have much money, so it was kind of uh, flexible on the, on the payment terms. And actually, I was the only possible buyer of his company. So he realized that he should help me because that's how he could make money. Uh, and that's exactly how it happened. But on the paper, that was absolutely impossible. I had no money. Uh, so how do you acquire a company with no money? Well, that's when the personality comes into play. This is CEO to CEO. And, and to tell you the truth, uh, three days uh, before the deal, um, I, I, I was in touch with the bank that was supposed to fund the deal. And, and the bank told me, I'm sorry, but we are not following you. So we are not going to lend you any money. So I'm calling the seller of the company saying, I'm terribly sorry. We've been talking for six months to acquire the company. I had a deal with actually your bank, but they just, they just, sent, your, they, they just sent their mind. So... We cannot do that deal. And the guy told me, because we had been discussing for six months, let me come back to you with a solution. And he literally told me, you can pay me over five years. And I paid him with the money that we were generating from his own company that we just multiplied because we, we made some uh, smart moves. And the company was much more profitable than we expected. And the guy was very happy because he had an earn out. So 
at the end of the day, he made more money trusting me than if we had funded the deal with the bank. Very interesting story, man. Well, look, um, thank you so much for being on the show, Emmanuel. It's been a real privilege having you here, buddy. I think you're doing cool things. It's different, man. Um, and I'm all about di the difference. I think the different things are the things that are most valuable. So thanks for being on the show, man. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. That was a pleasure. Anytime. Cheers, guys.